There's no newsworthy exemption uh, to content that incites violence or suppresses voting. Even if a, if a politician or government official says it, uh, if we determine uh, the content may lead to violence or deprive people of their right to vote, uh, we're going to take that content down no matter who says it. That was Mark Zuckerberg seeking to reassure the public that Facebook is finally getting serious about flagging false, misleading, or racist content that continues to proliferate on its platform. It comes amid a growing boycott by major advertisers protesting Facebook's policies, especially its refusal to take down what many view as hate speech. Is this a critical turning point for Facebook? We'll discuss with one of the country's shrewdest analysts of social media platforms, investor and author Roger McNamee, and we'll talk to Yahoo News political reporter John Ward about President Trump's sinking poll numbers and the prospects for next month's Republican convention in a state, Florida, grappling with soaring COVID-19 numbers on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And we are joined today by our Yahoo News colleague, John Ward. John, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you, guys. Good to be with you. So, you know, there's been so much depressing news of late that I think we should all be thankful when we hear news that is, um, shall we say, delicious, if nothing else, or um, amusing. And uh, I think today we've got quite a bit of it. We just got the first accounts of Mary Trump's book about her uncle, the president of the United States. Uh, We have not yet had a chance to pour through it, but uh, among the items that have been flagged right off the bat is that according to Mary Trump, Donald Trump paid somebody to take his SATs so he could get into the Wharton Business School as an undergraduate. I did not know that. I found it totally believable, but it is um, a sort of delicious item about our president. Well, yeah, like we should have known that it would take someone inside the family to hit Donald Trump where he is most vulnerable. Uh, (laughs) And And, and, and that uh, is his mental capacity? (laughs) (laughs) That is his mental capacity. That is, you know, his uh, this idea that uh, he's like a, you know, got into Ivy League colleges because we live in a meritocracy. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and that he did not have a leg up on others, either because of the wealth that he was born into or his apparent willingness to cheat. I've actually got a few more delicious, amusing items in the news today that I, I want to flag as well. We just got 
accounts of who was getting all the payments under the Paycheck Protection Program to shore up the economy during the COVID pandemic. And among those, and I love this, uh, among those is Grover Norquist's Americans for Tax Reform Foundation, which got 150 to 350,000. Grover Norquist, of course, being the notorious anti-taxer whose goal in life for years has been to shrink the federal government until it can fit into a bathtub, I believe is um, a phrase that's been attributed to him. And yet here he is on the federal dole taking taxpayer money to keep his foundation alive, among others who also got money under the Paycheck Protection Program, the Ayn Rand Institute, which got 350000 to $1 million. Ayn Rand, of course, being the um, philosopher of objectivism, which foreswore any role for government at all. And yet Here are her uh, disciples taking money. And the final one, which I really enjoyed seeing, is Charles Harder, Charles Harder's law firm. Charles Harder is the lawyer for President Trump, who's been suing left and right, including trying to shut down the uh, book by Mary Trump. And his law firm got between $150,000 and $350,000 from the taxpayers. Mike, I would like to point out that the bathtub was not a marker for target size for the government that Grover hmm. Norquist used. The bathtub was the vehicle for execution because the metaphor that he always liked to use was we want to drown. I think it was drown the, make it the size of being able to drown it in the bath. There's something about drowning it in the bathtub. Do you guys yeah. not remember this? I do, and that's why I brought it up, even if I garbled it. But I think yeah, I well, got I'm garbling the- it now, even though I thought I had it. <laughs> yeah, I this thought is your you good were news segment, though. Hey, Ward, we did not bring you onto this podcast to talk about <laughs> to talk <laughs> to about, about, <laughs> about Ayn Rand and Grover Norquist. We brought you on to this podcast to talk about Kanye West getting PP uh-huh. loans, specifically <laughs> for his Yeezy brand. Come on. Did that really happen? I did not. Did that really happen? <laughs> apparently for, yeah, his Yeezy brand, you know, which is a like a, a clothing brand. He did get apparently uh, PPP funds. Terrible timing just as he announced his run for the presidency. So I guess now he might not actually uh, be able to win the presidency because of this scandal. Well, okay. I'm single handedly going to deprive, you know, figures like Kanye West of oxygen just by not paying attention to them. That'll keep um, him out. Yeah, except if he's running for president, you'll have no choice but to cover his campaign. Clyburn may assign you to do that. Um, Some (laughs) of us actually do research, so let's get the Grover Norquist quote exactly right. It's, (laughs) I don't want to abolish government. I simply want to reduce it to the size where I can drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub. That was said on NPR's Morning Edition, May 25th, 2001. So it was both the marker for size and the vehicle for disposal. Yes. All right. On to um, more serious matters, John. The uh, president's poll numbers continue to sink. The latest Gallup poll has him down to 38% approval rating. I think that's a new low south of the 40s. It is looking increasingly bleak for the president's reelection campaign and increasingly difficult to see a path where he can change the direction of the way things are going. 
Yeah, I mean, I I actually think one of the most interesting metrics on this is the betting odds, not because they're predictive, but because they demonstrate where people's heads are at. And I think we're going to talk about Facebook in a moment. The One of the most interesting things over the last two months, no, month or so, if you look at the betting odds for Trump versus Biden in, you know, for most of this year, by and large, it's been Trump at about 50% chances of winning and Biden at about 40 to 42%. Now around late May, that starts to close. And as George Floyd is murdered and the protests kick off, that's when you see Trump's numbers just nosedive in this particular poll. So they intersect June 2nd. And as of about June 26th, June 27th, a couple of weeks later, almost a month later, Biden is up at 59% chances of winning and and Trump is down at 37%. I will note that, again, this is not predictive. It's not scientific. It's betting odds. But over the last, I don't know, five, six days, things have narrowed slightly. It's 56 to 39. But but John, help us understand why it is that you know, when you see an apparent correlation between his numbers plummeting and his disastrous handling of both the pandemic and then the protests and, and all of the racial issues that have been raised in the wake of the George Floyd killing, why he just doubles down on his race baiting rhetoric, on his culture war over masks and, and the pandemic. I mean, does he not have any other plays in his playbook to go to? Is it just that he doesn't know what to do or or is there some strategy here? I think there is strategy. I'll caveat this, though, by saying that I think that one of the biggest challenges for reporting on Trump from the beginning has been that it's very hard to know exactly what he's thinking because he doesn't necessarily, I think, share a lot of, of his most inner thoughts with a lot of people. He's not getting consistent advice. He has a lot of different people around him and he doesn't necessarily follow advice. So it's kind of a, you know, in the past you had White Houses that were hamstrung by a lack of a chief of staff. So you had too many inputs. This is almost the opposite where you have almost, you know, no real inputs because he just kind of does whatever is on his mind at that moment. But I do think there's some strategy here and it is a strategy that is in some ways the result of the fact that he doesn't have a lot of other skill sets or instincts or just sort of talents other than sort of to be provocative and outrageous. And then when you combine that with his path to victory, he really does need to amp the enthusiasm of his most loyal supporters and perhaps more importantly, tamp down the enthusiasm of some number of middle ground white and other races, but sort of moderate to independent voters who are not all in for the whole progressive agenda. And so if he can kind of portray the left, the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, as radical on issues like speech, race, and other issues, that's his best shot. But I think, you know, he's arguably gone too far a number of times already. But, you know, I think there's been some reporting on the fact that he is imitating 
And when I say too far, I mean he's alienating people he, he needs to win over. But I think there's been good reporting on the fact that he's sort of imitating some of Tucker Carlson's rhetoric, which, again, is really doubling down on the idea that the Democratic Party is being taken over by anti-free speech, you know, leftist radicals. That could be a strategy or it could simply be he watches Tucker Carlson at night and um, likes I think, what he I hears think that's largely the extent out. of Trump's strategy is that he watches right. cable and sort of, you know, goes with his gut on what's best. You guys mentioned Tucker Carlson. I mean, unless I dream this, I don't think I did. But wasn't there a boomlet about Tucker Carlson possibly running for president in 2024? I mean, he's if he's already kind of the pipeline to Trump's brain, but he's a more polished version of him, much more polished version of him. And if you buy the idea that Trump has transformed the Republican Party into a a nationalist populist party, is Tucker Carlson someone that uh, we ought to be taking seriously at all? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, there's, it's all speculation at this point. It's a long way off. There's a lot that will happen between now and, you know, four years from now. I don't have any insight on this. I did work for him for uh, about a year and a half, a decade ago. And what so was that I do like? know him. Um, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast episode. <laughs> but, <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> yeah. A lot of us have known Tucker over the years and yeah, find right. him to exactly. be very different today than he was when um, we saw him on the social circuit back well, and 10 years ago. Right. When he was yeah. writing magazine articles for Tina Brown. Right. But let me ask you more immediately. You know, we but have can I just these... finish that thought? Because I think, I sure. think you know, Sorry. I think Tucker is absolutely somebody you have to consider running in a couple of years. But I don't think I don't think it's necessarily him, though. I think he just probably wants to either be the person pushing somebody like who's a populist like Josh Hawley or um, Tom Cotton, you know, to the front of the line. I can see him not wanting to have to deal with the headaches of that. But, you know, he already deals with a lot of complicated. He's had to basically move out of D.C. Not that he's hurting. He's living in Florida and Maine. But, um, you know, the presidency is a a pain in the ass job. So I can see him wanting to be sort of the mover and shaker behind the right wing populist movement rather than the person in power. Well, I was going to say some of us, but I should actually just say at least one of us has suggested for some weeks now that it is not a foregone conclusion that Donald Trump actually runs for re-election this year as these poll numbers continue to drop. I think that uh, the more he looks at what could well be certain and potentially humiliating defeat, he may decide yet to throw in the towel. The convention is not until late next month. But speaking of that convention scheduled for Jacksonville, with these Florida numbers of new COVID cases going through the roof, it's clear Florida officials are going to have to are starting to tighten up. How is this convention, which Trump has envisioned as a traditional convention with cheering crowds indoors, people waving, sitting next to each other, how is this convention even going to come off? Well, I mean, if by come off, you mean happen? Yeah. uh, You know, yeah. You could mean how's it going to look, and it's probably going to look crazy if it looks anything like... um, the event outside that he just did where people were close together with no masks. Um, but, but how do you have an indoor convention when you yeah. have COVID cases skyrocketing in the way they are? I, I mean, the thing, the, the unpleasant reality for the Trump campaign is that there is now the potential for a Tulsa like embarrassment 
at the at their actual convention. And if it starts to look like that, something like that could occur, whether it's public health officials in Jacksonville saying, you know, strongly warning them against it or, um, you know, people actually like senators are already starting to do. Chuck Grassley from Iowa said he's not going to go. I think Lamar Alexander said the same thing. And if if you have a sort of cascading effect of people basically saying we're not going to go, they'll know that a couple of weeks out and they'll have to scale it back and try to save save face. Um, and I think that's as likely as anything right now. I, I think just going back to the original question, though, it, it just feels to me like things shifted very decisively and you see it in the polling. And I've had these anecdotal conversations, but it seems like things shifted very decisively around the time of the Floyd protests. And I do think his walk across Lafayette Square and his picture in front of St. John's, unless things change dramatically, unless he somehow pulls this out of a hat, to me, that's the moment when normal people who don't pay a lot of attention to politics looked at him, looked at the way he's handled COVID and just decided that he is making things worse by all of his antics. And so they might be able to put up with his Twitter. They might be even be able to kind of wave off some of his racial divisiveness. But I think the idea that he is a chaos agent rather than a uniter and that he's a provocateur rather than a protector, those are the big picture concepts that I think are turning off some of the just middle of the road, average people who don't think about politics all the time. It's, in, it's really interesting. Uh, I, you know, I think you might be right about that, but it seems that one of the things about this um, extraordinary presidency and, you know, in which this president has broken through so many norms is there never really seemed to be a tipping point because there would always be the next outrage, which would That's make right. you forget the previous outrage. But there is something about that moment and those images and that highly charged time and emotional time that we were all so immersed in that that may be a tipping point. Uh, you know, I don't know that polling will ever be able to show yeah. that, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how historians look back on it. Well, yeah, the, ima the image of him holding the Bible upside down in front of the <laughs> church, I think, is going to stick with a lot of people, including perhaps uh, some of his uh, one-time evangelical supporters. But, John, you've got a new piece up about Facebook, which we're going to be talking about with our next guest, Roger McNamee, the, the Facebook boycott. Tell us about your piece. Well, I mean, I originally started out trying to report on what the Biden campaign's doing regarding Facebook because they're basically working the refs the same way they're working the mainstream press, which is something I've written about the way that they're handling the press. But as I got into it, I realized I needed to kind of back up and get my head around just all of the developments that have been happening with Facebook because it has been sort of one thing after another over the last month or two. And you know, one of the big moments, again, going back to that late May period was Trump tweeting about how mail-in voting was going to re result in widespread fraud and stolen ballots and all this other, all these other things that are not true or verified by any kind of facts. And that was the point at which Twitter said, you know, attached for the first time a fact check to his tweet. And not only did Facebook sort of at that moment in late May you know, decide not to do any kind of fact check or label on the president's post on Facebook, which was identical to his tweet. 
Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Facebook, actually went on Fox News and doubled down on his sort of longtime aggressively free speech position. And he said, we're not going to be the arbiter of truth. Fast forward to late June, June 26th or June 28th, and Facebook changes course and they say, we are going to now put labels on some of the posts by politicians to say they might be violating our terms. What happened in between late May and late June? Well, George Floyd protests, but also you've got this boycott building and you've got a lot of pressure on Facebook to remove hate speech, misinformation. And there's arguments that some of Trump's comments about voting by mail and voter fraud and election fraud are a form of uh, voter suppression by discouraging people from wanting to vote. That's a debate. The thing I wanted to write about as I kind of talked to people and thought about this is that, you know, Facebook is meeting with civil rights groups and the Anti-Defamation League. They're, they're making these concessions about moderating content more aggressively. But I think what people need to keep their eye on is that the most important thing to Facebook, especially since the 2016 election when they were blamed for a lot of what happened with the Russian interference, the most important thing to them is not a boycott. It's government regulation, you know, all the way to the possibility of, you know, things like them being forced to spin off Instagram and WhatsApp and other targeted regulation, like being forced to not offer highly, highly targeted advertising where they gather all the information about you and me and the listeners and give advertisers, you know, highly specific ways of targeting us. So these are the things that really matter to them. And when you, when you kind of place that at the front of your mind, you realize that there's only so much room for them to appease Democrats because Democrats ideologically have always been more inclined to support government regulation and Republicans, especially over the last few decades in the modern era have been increasingly anti-regulation. And so as Facebook looks at the, the road ahead and how they're going to shape and mitigate the most harsh forms of regulation, they have to have an ally. And the Democrats are almost certainly not going to be that ally, which simply leaves the Republicans. So that means there's only so much room for them to really go down the road of accommodation with Democrats. And uh, except John, except John, they read the polls just like we do. And if it looks like it's going to be a Democratic route in November, uh, you know, they're going to have to figure out a way to work with the new powers that be that that is true. And I think I think, you know, Ben Smith also alluded to this in his recent column on this. Uh, I think they probably have realized over the last month that they have been over their skis a bit in terms of being too inclined and too aligned with the Republican Party and are in some ways trying to make up for that. However, even if the Democrats do control the House, the Senate and the White House, you know, you still need probably unless they get rid of the legislative filibuster in the Senate, you still need 60 votes to pass a lot of stuff through. So having a strong Republican partner in the Senate is still going to be important for Facebook in that situation. So how does Zuckerberg and Facebook walk this fine line? What do they need to do to placate people like uh, Josh Hawley in the Senate, Republican from Missouri, who has been very critical of Facebook in part because he is concerned about anti-conservative bias on, on the platform. So Facebook's got it coming and going. 
you've really hit on, I think, what is the key question as Facebook tries to thread this needle. You mentioned Josh Hawley. He's a freshman senator from Missouri. He's really been almost the most outspoken Republican uh, agitating for regulation of Facebook. And you've got Tucker Carlson also uh, doing the same thing about Google. You know, Hawley's been able to bring along some Republicans like Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and some others. The question is, are they interested in regulation for the sake of regulation that's interested in reducing sort of toxic content and abuse of user data on platforms like Facebook? Or are they mostly just using these threats of regulation as a lever to try to pressure these platforms not to censor conservative actors and speech? Because I I think the question is, do they care more about speech than about anything else? Is that their real issue? And I, you know, I've had conversations in the past that indicated that that is really the end game here for them. And if that's the case, then the the answer to your question is Facebook just can't do a lot of content moderation without pissing off somebody like Josh Hawley. And, and if the Democrats have majorities, that's that puts them in a real tough spot. I think the argument of our next guest, Roger McNamee, one of the original investors in Facebook, is that this is central to the business model. You need as many eyeballs as you can get. You get eyeballs by uh, getting people angry, getting them pissed off, getting them worked up, and that that's what brings in the advertising revenue. And that's the central business model upon which Facebook and actually most of social media is founded. It does occur to me that there is uh, a great opportunity for some Democratic insider right now to make a shitload of money uh, from Facebook to replace uh, Joel Cass. Kaplan, who's been the chief yeah. architect of Facebook's Washington strategy, Joel Kaplan, having been a top uh, guy in the George W. Bush White House with strong Republican connections. And that's where the um, Republican Facebook alliance, uh, to the extent that that's what it is, has been forged by Joel Kaplan. And um, Facebook is going to need uh, somebody new to do that if uh, we have a biden presidency can we do a quick lightning round of of uh prominent like two or three names that we think could maybe fill that role <laughs> well i have i have two off the top of my head go right uh, ahead david david pluff and robert gibbs gibbs uh, already works for mcdonald's yeah and he probably would uh, like to uh, step it up a bit i don't know how much prominence he gets as the McDonald's uh, lobbyist. Sure. But, um, what's the other name you mentioned? Gibbs and uh, oh, David Pluff. Pluff. That's perfect. Perfect. Neither one would go to work in a Biden White House. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. Those are great candidates. Anyway, John, thanks again for joining us. Uh, we are going to be staying in touch with you as we get closer to that Jacksonville convention. Are you going to go if it comes off? Oh, uh, that's TBD. I got to have a conversation with Dan about that. <laughs> You're, we just, we just, we just got your hotel room yesterday. But uh, I'm, I'm told, I'm told the that. Ominous uh, music. I'm, I'm, do, you, do you have a <laughs> ventilator that goes with it? Uh, <laughs> I'm told that we can cancel within 48 hours, so you don't have to make up your mind uh, immediately. And uh, our first priority is the health of our employees. So, uh, I just wish everyone could right. see your face right now. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, Corporate uh, bureaucrat we, that Clydeman is. Yes. Before we go, <laughs> before we go, I, I just want to remind our listeners that uh, John has written this terrific uh, piece on Facebook and um, its challenges right now and the kind of political landscape uh, that it has to operate in. And so by the time this podcast is uh, available, (laughs) is live, that's the word I was looking for. So will John Ward's piece and everybody should, should check it out. Thanks, guys. We now have back with us for a return appearance on Skullduggery, Roger McNamee, venture capitalist, rock musician, one of the original investors in Facebook. Roger, welcome back to Skullduggery. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, so much to talk about that has developed on the Facebook front since you were last on last year. And right now we have this extraordinary advertisers boycott of Facebook over a lot of the material content that they are continuing to let on the platform that the critics say pushes misinformation and hate speech. What do you make of this advertiser boycott? So full disclosure, Michael, I am an advisor to both the CEOs of the Anti-Defamation League, ADL, which is the leader of that campaign, and Common Sense Media, which is one of the other founders. And so I have been involved in it in a as an advisor from the beginning. And you'll recall, when I came in a year ago, I was promoting my book, Zucked, which essentially told the tale of my transformation from being 34-year true believer in the power of technology to enhance people's lives to not just a skeptic, but an activist trying to make people aware of the threat. And what Stop Hate for Profit is all about is engaging advertisers against what I believe has been the core problem from the beginning, which is that if you look at the design of the platforms that sell advertising, so we're talking here about YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, there are others but those are the four big ones. Those platforms, they need your attention in order to succeed. And because they're able to control the content for each individual person, because they have all this data about us and can fine tune it, they have the ability to apply every lesson of psychology that's ever been created. And they have the ability as a result to essentially manipulate our choices and through that to manipulate our attention and our behavior. And that's a problem because if you think about a system where you're trying to get engagement, the best way to do that is to scare people or to make them outraged. And what does that? Well, hate speech, disinformation, and conspiracy theories. So it turns out that those three kinds of content are not incidental to the business model. Those three kinds of content are actually the lubricant that makes the model work. They're a relatively small percentage of everything that goes on there, but the significance that they have in terms of people being on there and what they care about is gigantic. And the problem with that and the reason that Stop Hate for Profit exists is because it gives small numbers of really extreme people a disproportionate voice in our politics. So, Roger, let me let me ask you this. And actually, before I do, I guess I need to make a disclosure of our own, which is 
Yahoo News, uh, which is part of Verizon Media, is owned by Verizon, and Verizon is participating in this boycott. It's te- it's temporarily paused its advertising. You were, I think, the first really big company yeah. to join it, and thank you for that. <laughs> All right, above. I, I don't ab- think either of us was yeah. a decision maker in that well, you uh, can't process. Me. I know you're <laughs> above, above our above our pay grade, and I think just to el- elaborate, I mean, I think our CEO Hans Vestberg basically said that there was content that was appearing alongside our brands that was not up to our standards, and so they decided to pause advertising on the site. But I guess the the point of the boycott is to try to finally change Facebook's behavior and to change the kind of incentive structure that exists. Because what they've always done, what they've always talked about is a term that I hadn't heard until I came to work for a tech company, content moderation, which is to say, we'll just keep the stuff off the site. We'll just whack-a-mole, you know, get it off the site. But you say that just doesn't work. And here's what the real issue is. So you ask what the goals of the campaign are. In a perfect world, we would succeed in persuading first Facebook and then YouTube and Twitter and Instagram to change their business model so that hateful content is not amplified in a way that harms people. The First Amendment is there to allow people to say things that are awful. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is the fact that these guys take these voices and then amplify them because that's good for their bottom line. And so what we want advertisers to do is to recognize that they are complicit, that their dollars support this, and that You know, if you will, Facebook has been on a 16-year apology tour. I borrowed that from the great North Carolina scholar Zainab Tefeci, who talks about, you know, things go wrong at Facebook all the time. And they always sit there and first they deny it, then they deflect it, then they try to diffuse it. Finally, when they're forced to, they apologize, they promise to do better, and then they literally go right back to doing whatever it was they were doing before. And that has worked, and it's worked through the 2016 presidential election. It worked through the UK Brexit election. It worked after a genocide in Myanmar that the UN said Facebook was uniquely responsible for enabling. It worked through the Christchurch terrorism, right? I mean, they've gotten away with everything by just apologizing. So can I just ask you, Roger, you believe that this is just, on Zuckerberg's part, a feign, a cynical ploy, and that there is really no real principles at stake here for him. He always says that we're, we don't want to, we don't feel we should be the arbiters of truth. You just don't buy that? No, no. I think it's different than that. I think Mark has a different value system than I have. And that what we're really talking about here is a debate between value systems. In Mark's value system, connecting everyone on one platform, and he has three billion people. So there are more people on Facebook who are active users of it than are adherents to Christianity. There are twice as many people actively on Facebook as there are people in China. So Mark sits there and goes, hey, who are you guys to tell me what to do? I have created this amazing thing that's connected all these people. And I do it my way. And you have no right to judge me or to criticize. And my response to that is, you know, I think we should have a debate about that. And I may lose the debate. Let's face it. I've been at it for four years. I haven't won a damn thing yet. Okay. But the debate gets more intense 
And this is the first time that the people whose dollars support the economic engine have gotten in cash. I would argue that over 16 years, there's only been one crisis Mark faced that threatened to spin out of control, and that was Cambridge Analytica. And incredibly, they were able to put the genie back in the bottle on that one. And there is a meeting going on today with the principles of the Stop Hate for Profit campaign with Mark Zuckerberg, Sheryl Sandberg, Chris Cox, who runs the product of Facebook, and presumably a long string of Latinx and black people who are not actually executives of Facebook, but will be there to lend uh, moral support. And that will be an important step in them with their damage control, right? They're going to try to somehow get everybody to leave that meeting saying, we're making progress or Facebook's trying, right? So that they can go to the advertisers and say, see, there's nothing to worry about. You can go back to advertising. And the issue here is Facebook has created what I think is legitimately the greatest advertising platform in the history of media. And so every advertiser would like to get back on there. They'd like the hate speech to go away, but they don't want the other characteristics of Facebook to go away. And the problem is, I don't think you can have one without the other. So, Roger, what what triggered this boycott? If you could just sort of walk through, because a lot of these issues have been around for a long time. But were there particular pieces of content that went up that Facebook was refusing to take down? Just sort of walk us through how we got to this point. The original the first meeting, which was, I don't know, six plus months ago, took place in the context of Sasha Baron Cohen's speech to the Anti-Defamation League, where he mm. he basically called Facebook out for what they're doing in hate speech. It was a completely brilliant speech. And he persuaded Jonathan Greenblatt, the CEO of Anti-Defamation League, to meet with me and with Tristan Harris to talk about what could be done. And so we started having conversations about how would you organize something that would have an impact. And it was pretty obvious to everybody that advertisers were the fulcrum in the whole thing. They are the drivers of the economic engine. And historically, they've taken a completely hands-off view. And they've taken a hands-off view, notwithstanding the fact that Guy Peck, Eric Feinberg, and others have produced reams of examples of their ads adjacent to ads for illegal drugs, for terrorism recruiting, and all these other completely unspeakable, awful things. And yet the advertisers have basically looked away because they like the overall package that they get. Then George Floyd was murdered, and that changed everything. All of a sudden, it was possible for Jonathan Greenblatt and the ADL to reach out to the NAACP and comments and color of change and free press and say, this is way bigger than anti-Semitic hate speech. This is really about hate as the most destructive force in our politics and the most destructive force in our civil rights. And suddenly that broader coalition, but particularly one led by the NAACP and Color of Change was really powerful because, you know, they, the moral authority at this moment in time that they bring I mean, ADL has always had massive moral authority. Common Sense Media, which was there from the very beginning, always had great moral authority. But George Floyd was a black man murdered by the police. And his murder has caused the country to enter a period of self-reflection. So just to follow up on that, can you give particular examples of the sorts of 
postings or content that's been up there that Facebook has refused to take down and which has energized this boycott? I mean, to be clear, there are Facebook groups and separate the thing from just thinking about it as content, to think about the whole business model. So Facebook groups are where white supremacists gather. It's where they recruit. Facebook, its own internal studies said that 64% of the time that people join an extremist group, it is because of a Facebook recommendation. So the people who are joining, whether it's QAnon or Proud Boys or any white supremacist group that's out there, are joining this 64% of the time because of a recommendation from Facebook. And if you sit there and think about things like the quarantine liberation movement, such as it was, or these people who've gone armed into state houses in Michigan, and the folks who gathered at Gettysburg, right, to defeat the fictional Antifa event that was there, all that stuff was organized over Facebook. And Facebook is a sanctuary for white supremacy. And, you know, it just, there's so many examples. I mean, Andrew Morantz at the New Yorker wrote an entire book about this. And, you know, it's like, the book is brilliant. You should read it. It's really, really, really hard to read because he embedded himself for two years. How he did that is beyond me. But, you know, at this moment in time, the country, it's really reconsidering its values. And I think Facebook is in the crosshairs there. You talked about how Facebook, Zuckerberg on this apology tour about that's really about deflection and distraction, but nothing really changes. Has this boycott started to have any impact? Have you seen? Super question. Really important question. So I didn't finish the point. What were the goals? There are 8 million advertisers on Facebook. The largest one is about one quarter of 1%, right? It's, this isn't like the New York Times or Time Magazine where, you know, the top 20 or even probably Yahoo, the top 20 advertisers are some really measurable percentage of the total. This is the biggest platform ever. Yeah, scale is a, scale is a challenge for you here. What, well, but the goal wasn't to undermine their revenues in the short run. The goal, the immediate goal, which I would argue we have succeeded at, is to make a linkage in the mind of advertisers and their customers between advertising and the hate that is on Facebook, that without the advertising, you cannot do all these things that they do. And I think we've already succeeded on that. I mean, there are more than 900 advertisers who have joined this boycott, and they include some of the largest in the world. In fact, if you look at Facebook's largest advertisers, it includes a few of those. And let's face it. I mean, I think the vast majority of them would like Facebook to do something that allows them to start advertising again. The longest moment of self-reflection last, Michael, in the country. Mm -hmm. The, the more successful this is. And here's the last thing. I think that this campaign has already left a mark on Facebook's brand. I think we have changed public perception at least a little. And more people are looking at this and going, I get it. I love the product day to day. I really like using it. But wow, look at what the cost is. So given that the, the problems you have identified you say are central to the Facebook 
business model, actually central to the business model of all social media firms. I mean, is is the ultimate goal to put Facebook out of business? I would like to believe that there is a set of regulations that we can put in place that would allow us to get what's great about social media without the harm. I mean, let's face it, we've been, we're in quarantine. And where would we be without all these social tools, right? So the good is, in my mind, really obvious. And I would like to force changes in four areas. I like to start with safety. And there are two things I want to do there. One is tech companies have a culture of shipping products and letting the people who use it deal with the problems. So you saw facial recognition introduced with massive bias built in. And, you know, there are a lot of victims of that. And the companies don't acknowledge any responsibility. So I would like to have an FDA-like thing that requires demonstration of safety and freedom from bias before you can ship a tech product. I would also like to see a change to the safe harbor, what's called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, that currently says that platforms like Facebook and YouTube aren't responsible for third-party content, which they've interpreted as a license to essentially amplify anything. And which means they can't be sued under the law, right? They're immunized. The, the, way the, the way the law was written doesn't say that, but the way it's been interpreted in the courts definitely yeah. says that. Right. What I'd like to do is to remove the safe harbor relative to anyone who doesn't treat all content identically. So if you amplify some kinds of content, then by definition, people can sue you if they are harmed. It doesn't change much, but it changes incentives. The second category is privacy. We clearly have to give people much more control over what corporations both know about them and can do with what they know about them. So, you know, ideally, I'd love it to be treated as a human right, not an asset, so you can't use it at all. More likely, we'll go to a shift towards what's known as opt-in. Right now, in California and in Europe, they have a thing for opt-out. It says you as a consumer can remove yourself from your da their databases, but you have to know who has all your data and you have to go through a lot of hoops. I'd like to shift that so that anybody who wants to use your data has to get your permission each time before they do it. The third category is honesty. This is an industry which hides the ball relative to its numbers. So they grossly overstate the number of users they have, the number of ad views and all that. And no one can verify because they are monopolists and they control all the data. So I'd like the Securities and Exchange Commission to look into the revenue practices, particularly of Google and Facebook, where I think the numbers are systemically overstated for a long time. And then lastly, I'd like to use antitrust law in order to restore competition and to give startups a chance to go out there and create alternative business models. If you did all four of those things, so safety, privacy, the honesty stuff, and competition stuff, I believe that it, effectively, we'd be applying the same rules we've applied to the pharmaceutical industry and to the chemicals industry. But look, Roger, look, everybody accepts that the government or most people accept that the government has a responsibility to regulate pharmaceuticals. They could do harm to individuals, you know, if drugs are have not been tested. Um, there's lots of areas where we accept regulation, but it becomes very tricky when you get to regulating content and even enforcing the kinds of regulatory measures you're talking about requires somebody to do the enforcing. Who is it that we would trust? To be clear, to not one of those things that I just described requires any any incremental infrastructure at all. 
I mean, the safety and efficacy thing, I, th I guess you could say that somebody has to has to do that. But what that's really about is making you economically liable for harms, right? So the industry could create that organization if it wanted to. But if you if you put out a thing like the ring doorbell and it results in people being harmed because the cops get called in situations where they shouldn't and people get harmed, that you're really liable, completely liable for that. that I mean, Michael, what I'm saying here is I'm not talking about any kind of content regulation. In fact, I believe that this notion of moderation of content is a pipe dream. These companies are too big. So you have the issue of scale. You have the issue of latency, which is that if you're going to allow people to post stuff and then take it down afterwards because you say it's harmful, that lag is going to be so significant, there'll still be a huge amount of harm because the numbers are big. And then the third problem, which is the really big one, is these companies, their business model is about having as much on there as possible. So their intent is not to moderate it carefully. And so you watch every time you give them control of what they're going to moderate, they do what they do, which is to sit there and say, I'm sorry, but hate speech, you know, white supremacy is okay. But I guess Isakoff's question is ultimately a political one, which is to do the things you want to do is going to require very significant legislation. And I know the landscape has changed. Uh, how does it look to you? And will it be dependent on Joe Biden winning the presidency? Will it be dependent on Democrats winning back the Senate? What's the political kind of uh, equation right now as you see it? Well, to be clear, I've been arguing for this stuff, you know, with increasing intensity for four years. And the last two months is the first time when it felt like we actually had a shot, right? You know, for the most part, the important regulatory things are being done in Europe. But increasingly, you see state attorneys general having power here. And so I think some of the antitrust and some of the consumer protection things and the privacy things are actually likely to come at the state level and already are, particularly in California. But yes, I mean, to be clear about this whole thing, I'm an activist. My job is to tell you what we should be aiming for. The politics of doing this have never been better. And are they good enough yet? Well, we'll find out, won't we? But I look at what's going on. I just think that that George Floyd's murder has caused this period of self-reflection in the United States, where if it lasts through November, may well result in a fundamental change in the composition of the Congress and the White House with a mandate to place civil rights and justice much higher in the priority than it's been for the last 40 years. And that's progress. So Zuckerberg has been out there saying that the Facebook is becoming more aggressive in monitoring the content, taking stuff down, flagging postings that it says are inaccurate or misleading people. You don't buy that this is real or serious? Well, Michael, it's, it's real. But when you go from zero to flagging two things on a denominator measured in the billions per week, I think we should be, shall we say, less than enthusiastic about it. Obviously, getting off of zero is an improvement. But, you know, this is the issue with Twitter, too. Twitter was, in fact, very courageous when it took down two Trump posts and then flagged a couple of others. 
But keep in mind, the man puts out, what, 100 tweets a day, almost all of them demonstrably false, many of them with calls to violence, and most of them go through. So we should be, we should have higher expectations for these people. And the question I would ask them is, where are you going to live, okay? I mean, you, you know, you're going to get some island and be totally fortified and be insulated from all this? I mean, what, what's your plan? Let me just follow up with a Twitter question for you. Um, I don't know if you followed a couple months ago, the president went on this uh, tweet storm suggesting that Joe Scarborough was a murderer who had killed uh, a woman that worked in his office who died 19 years ago. The uh, husband of that woman, Lori Klesudis, the husband, TJ Klesudis, wrote this poignant letter to Jack Dorsey pleading with him to take down these tweets Dorsey didn't do so. They started to flag other tweets, but they left the ones from Trump suggesting that Scarborough was a murderer up there. What did you make of that? So, first of all, I mean, the whole thing is appalling. But here's the, here's where I actually agree with Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey. I do not want either one of them or any other technology person or anyone running a corporation to be deciding what speech is legitimate and what is not legitimate. My attitude is that the problem here is not with what people put up, but with what the platforms do with it once it's up there. It is the amplification, it is the their conscious amplification of harmful content that causes the harm. That there have always been white supremacists. There have always been climate change deniers, there have always been anti-vaxxers, but they have disproportionate power because of the way these platforms profit from amplifying their harmful content. And, you know, let's face it, Twitter, Trump was the greatest thing that ever happened to Twitter. It's the greatest thing that ever happened to social media. And they are always going to amplify his stuff because it's so engaging. It, think about these conversations. Well, then l let me ask you about a speech issue involving a legacy publisher, not a platform. I'm talking about the New York Times. They created a huge controversy um, when the op-ed page published an opinion piece by uh, Senator Tom Cotton in which he called for the uh, U.S. armed forces to crack down on protesters. Huge rebellion inside the Times. Um, they were heavily criticized on social media and elsewhere. And ultimately, the uh, editor of the opinion page, uh, James Bennett, was pushed out. What did you make of that? Because the Times is not, they're, they're just publishing. They're not amplifying in the way that... Uh... Yeah. So, so I want to be really, really, really clear about this. I am not an expert on journalistic ethics or how to run the New York Times. What I will note, though, is the New York Times is obviously a massively influential publication. And their focus on the Hillary Clinton emails in 2016, their publishing of Clinton cash, their spiking of the story on the FBI investigating Trump, those were editorial choices that they have never really taken responsibility for, and yet had a measurable impact on the outcome of the 2016 election. And I look at this and I go, the Times has a very strong culture, and I am a subscriber, I'm a daily reader of it, and I find their 
some of their editorial decisions to be incomprehensible, like their treatment of Trump's speech at Mount Rushmore in comparison to the Washington Post treatment was an absolute study in both siderism. And I don't understand why they do that, right? I mean, I so I look at this and, you know, the thing with Bennett, I found him infuriating, but so what? I mean, that's probably why they have an editorial page, right? <laughs> Is to provoke people like me. And, you know, so I, I like I said, I don't want to opine on that specific thing because what do I know? I'm a tech guy, I'm an investor guy, I'm a musician, I'm not a, a, a journalist. But what I can tell you is that I believe the Times is, they're not trying to undermine democracy. I don't believe Facebook wants to undermine democracy either. The difference is that the business model of Facebook will undermine democracy just inevitably because of the way amplification of outrage works. Mm -hmm. And and the Times is in a different, different situation, right? And, you know, I mean, Twitter is tiny compared to Facebook and YouTube. But because its audience is journalists, politicians, and celebrities, and because they follow it religiously, Twitter has an outsized impact on our politics and on our culture. And therefore, they do have responsibility. And I would like to think that they and Facebook and, and YouTube would take a vacation and think about the world they want to live in and the role they're playing in it and ask, look, haven't we been successful enough? Can't we recognize that the future of our country and the future of the of Western democracies and Asian democracies is at least partially dependent on us cleaning up our act? Roger, I got one last uh, question for you. I was really struck by a disclosure that Facebook made to investors in one of its recent SEC filings, in which it said to wit, we may be subject to negative publicity if we are not successful in our efforts to prevent misinformation or other illicit or objectionable uses of our products or services in connection with the COVID-19 pandemic, the 2020 U.S. presidential election or other elections around the world. Any such negative publicity could have an adverse effect on the size, engagement and loyalty of our user base and result in decreased revenue, which could adversely affect our business and financial results. Are they really worried or is that just boilerplate? Well, to be clear, we can only hope that that comes true, because if you want to understand how wearing a mask became a cultural war issue as opposed to a public health issue in the United States, look no further than social media. Platforms, right. Facebook has nurtured anti-vaxxers. It has nurtured. I mean, not consciously, but just the nature of how the business was structured has created a home for anti-vaxxers. It's created a home for white supremacists. It's created a home for a lot of folks who have essentially come together to fight a cohesive public health strategy. In the process, they've wound up becoming oppositional to all the forces in the country who would like to have good public health, which puts them in opposition to civil rights organizations who are there protecting the interests of people of color. Because let's face it, people of color have been disproportionately harmed by the pandemic and the systems that we have. I mean, it's almost as though COVID was engineered perfectly to exploit the weaknesses in our politics, in our economy, and in our healthcare system. And, you know, this country's not just its inability to respond with public health, but its inability to actually deliver public health 
has been greatly exacerbated by these platforms, and they should be held to account. Mark's feeling is that, wow, it might affect the P&L. Well, it really, I mean, seriously, if corporations are people too, there's a manslaughter case that can be made against politicians and these companies because they have made choices that with which would have predictable outcomes. I have a feeling, uh, Roger, that if somebody does want to bring that manslaughter case, they will hire you as an advisor to it. Um, you seem to be the go-to guy for all this. You're, yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm just a concerned citizen, right? And the thing here is I would like to find a solution that allows us to get all the good of the Internet and really importantly allows us to create new models of technology that serve the needs of humanity. There is no reason why technology has to be harmful to underserved communities. There's no reason why it has to be predatory towards consumers. Those are business choices and we can fix that. And tech didn't used to be this way, right? I mean, for 50 years, it made products that enriched the lives of the people who used it. But we got away with that, away from that because the culture of the country got away from that. But now the culture is being reassessed. And in that reassessment, I think as long as we include tech, we're going to get there faster because we're never going to make any progress on climate change. We're never going to make progress on the pandemic. We're never going to make progress on hate if we don't recognize that Internet platforms are the tool that allows the harmful voices to have disproportionate political power. Roger, I want to thank you once again uh, for your unique insights into what is one of the bigger issues of our time. We will definitely want to have you back. Thanks again. Thank you both, gentlemen. I mean, seriously, this is this is a moment in time. And this campaign, Stop Hate for Profit, if you go to StopHateForProfit.com, you can sign up. You can learn more about it, learn about the issues that we're asking these companies to sign up to. And this stuff really does matter. And we are in a moment in time when we can, we can essentially re-architect the United States to suit the needs of the people who live here. And that would be a really cool thing. I hope we'll take advantage of it. Well, thank, thank you so much, Roger. I'm sure that uh, your uh, insights and your articulate discussion of these issues will amplify our small platform <laughs> <laughs> without with reason without outrage or anger for for the record we did ask roger to perform one of his musical songs for us and he declined uh which you can go to moonalice.com <laughs> okay <laughs> at 4 20 p.m pacific time seven days a week Today, yeah. we have the Doobie Decibel System Quartet, socially distanced and all of that. But here's the thing. We, are not, we normally broadcast on moonalice.com, ddsband.com, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. I was going to say, is there is there a Moon Alice Facebook group? Yes, of course there is. And there has to be. In <laughs> the music industry, everybody has to be there. And that's the point. There are good things about this. But here's the thing. For the month of July, we're pausing our face, the Facebook broadcasts because we are in sympathy for the campaign. Got it. Thanks to Yahoo News senior political correspondent John Ward and author, activist, and musician Roger McNamee for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.